0: This podcast became part of a controversy last night when County Councilwoman Nan Baker basically said something I said in this podcast, used in a political ad, killed her re-election campaign. I don't think we have that kind of influence on this podcast, but if you want to read what she has to say, we have a full story about it on Cleveland.com. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, I'm Chris Quinn here with Layla Tassi and Lisa Garvin. Laura Johnston is off for a couple of days. And a reminder we will not have a podcast on Friday. We've been going so strong for so long. We all need a day off once in a while to not opine. Let's begin. Did Tim Ryan, in defeat, offer America a much needed lesson that he could not have taught if he had won the Senate election on Tuesday? Layla.
1: Well, personally, I would have rather he won and not (laughs) bless it. I could have done without it. But no, I mean, Tim Ryan, after losing the Senate race to J.D. Vance on Tuesday, made a call to Vance to concede the race. And it was a call that Vance himself described as very gracious. And then in his concession speech, Ryan used that gracious concession to call out those who believe the 2020 presidential election was stolen just because their guy didn't win. And he said, Quote, as someone who was the Democratic nominee, I had the privilege to concede this race to J.D. Vance because the way this country operates is that you lose an election, you concede, you respect the will of the people. We can't have a system where if you win, it's a legitimate election, and if you lose, someone stole it. That's not how we can move forward in the United States. And he he contrasted the U.S. to authoritarian states like Russia or China, where he said dissident voices are stifled and ethnically. Cleansing occurs. And he said he's really concerned for the direction of the country and that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, and that we need good people in office who are going to honor our institutions.
0: Yeah, it was a real moment of grace. He did it so well. I I just became so impressed with Tim Ryan during this campaign in all sorts of ways. He ran about the perfect Mm -hmm. campaign. Ohio is red now, so the, the people who vote Republican didn't want him. But there was actually discussion yesterday about how he has put himself on the national yeah. map, and might he uh-huh. be, even though he lost, a presidential contender, and it was an interesting question.
2: Yeah, and it was one that I brought up in yesterday's podcast. And and he is he's a dying breed. He's a centrist. I mean, he really. I mean,
0: <laughs> <A> dying breed. <laughs> a
2: is, it's a dying breed. But I really, you know, he's I think in his early fifties, so he's he's a good age. He got a lot of national exposure. I think he had a lot of good things to say to people on both sides of the aisle. So maybe not twenty twenty four but I could certainly see him possibly running in 2028 because let's face it, the democratic presidential pipeline is pretty thin.
0: Well, and his message was right where it needs to be. I mean, Laura Johnson and I were talking again yesterday about how, for many people in America, things are moving too fast. You know, we spent 20 years talking about gay marriage t- before people really got the understanding and accepted it. But in the past few years, we've been racing through things like changing pronouns and transgender issues. And even when the name Indian Summer became politically incorrect, people felt like, wait, we never even had a discussion about it. That The progressive side of the Democratic Party is, is frightening centrists. Mm-hmm. Well, he he didn't go in that direction. He was not the progressive side of the party. He went around basically trying to be the meat and potatoes, just like you said, a centrist. And a lot of people like that message. Again, Ohio, the the Republican Party has welcomed a lot of Ohioans in. They feel comfortable there for reasons that, that need exploration. But on a national scale, could he be the guy who has the appeal?
1: I think, I think you, you, you nailed it, Chris. I mean, I think that, but it depends on what he does next. There's a lot of time between now and and that future election and, uh, you know, what's next for, for Tim Ryan here.
0: And a lot of people are pointing out that he did lose the part of the state that he once Mm -hmm. represented, um, which is interesting because he'd been part of that for a long time. Anyway, very graceful goodbye for him. And, uh, and it was a story worth talking about. It's today in Ohio. Despite the red wave in Ohio's statewide offices Tuesday, did Ohio Democrats actually do better than expected in the battle for Congress? Lisa, we got more Democrats in Congress from Ohio than we had before. Yeah, we
2: actually have five Democrats in the U.S. House right now. That's out of 15 seats that Ohio has in the U.S. House. And three of them won in competitive districts that were, you know, redrawn to be competitive. All incumbents though, won. both Republican and Democrats were reelected except for one, the, uh, Republican from Cincinnati, Steve Chabot, who is the longest serving GOP member in the Ohio, how in the, in Ohio, in the U S house, he lost to Cincinnati city councilman, Greg Landsman. And that was a redrawn district that had an eight point advantage to uh, Joe Biden. So, uh, in the first in the uh that was the first district. In the ninth district, long serving uh Democrat Marcy Captor of Toledo kept her seat. She beat that nutbag uh J.R. Majewski, who carved Trump's name in his lawn. Um Chantel Brown held on to the eleventh district, fighting off Cleveland East Cleveland mayor. Eric Brewer. The thirteenth, Amelia Sykes, a hard won contest. It wasn't called until the early morning hours of uh Wednesday. Um, and sh- that she's the Democrat from Akron. And then Joyce Beatty was elected to her sixth term in the third district, which is northern and eastern Columbus suburbs.
0: So we now have five Democrats and ten Republicans in our congressional delegation, Correct. right? So think about that. So that's A third, so 33% of the congressional delegation is Democrat, 66% is Republican. And when people voted Tuesday for the statewide races, it was what, 58, 59% Republican. So it's actually much closer to the vote than it has been in previous years.
2: Yes. And these are with maps that were deemed unconstitutional. But, you know, as we've said before, you know, there's this battle between, you know, compact versus competitive districts that, you know, I guess the legislature is going to get back to work on these maps, you know, pretty soon. So we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, we were we were going to have a story about this eventually, hopefully today. But the is I just wonder if the debate about gerrymandering has has gone on a low burner because the numbers are closer now than they were throughout this past ten year fight to redraw maps. I mean we we need a constitutional amendment to take the politicians out of this thing. The they prove themselves completely inept. But but the state of things right now is probably more accurate than it's been in a couple of decades. So interesting. It's today in Ohio. Lame Duck, Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish, and we can call him that now that the election is over, made a controversial choice for the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority. Now he's withdrawn the name. Layla, who is it? Why is he controversial? And why is Buddhist trying to tie this up when he's going to be gone in something on the order of 55 days? All
1: good questions. His (laughs) choice here was Chris Glassburn, who was a controversial pick for a couple reasons. One, Glassburn is an infrequent user of RTA, which really caused a lot of consternation among members of the advocacy group Clevelanders for Public Transit. They believe that a regular RTA user deserves that seat. But also, Glassburn was Budish's campaign manager, and he was one of his senior policy advisors. So it creates this kind of icky appearance that this is a straight patronage appointment by our lame duck executive and that doesn't sit well with people. So, you know, Caitlin Durbin reports that Glassburn has voluntarily withdrawn his name from consideration this week. And he didn't say why, but that meant that County council didn't have to take it up at a committee where they were going to vet his fitness for the seat. So they all got out of having that discussion being on the hot seat. (laughs) And, uh, you know, interestingly, Glassburn had also worked on the campaign for Bride Rose Sweeney, who's the daughter of County Councilman Marty Sweeney. So Marty Sweeney actually requested an, an opinion from the county's inspector general, Alexa Beeler, on whether there were any conflicts of interest that needed to be considered with either with either Budish's nomination of Glassburn or, or Sweeney's voting on, on this nomination. And Beeler said, no, no, because it, it wouldn't have resulted in a financial or material benefit to either Sweeney or Budish or their families or businesses and, you know, all that. So but it's all a moot point now because Glassburn has withdrawn from consideration.
0: Well, credit Sweeney for asking the question, yeah. because we've seen many examples where they didn't. Can I mention Dave Wandelowski? <laughs> the the um you know, what would be nice now, because with Chris Renane having been elected to succeed Armin Budish, if Armin Budish wants to make this appointment before he goes, that he do the classy, graceful thing and discuss it with Chris before he does it or leave it to Chris to do it. But I, I just get the feeling, I mean, he's everything Armin Budish is doing as he heads out the door is not graceful and classy. And so my bet is he won't have that conversation with Chris. Yeah.
1: We don't know. Right. But I mean, this, this is kind of classic behavior of the outgoing whoever. Right. And we saw this at the end of the Jackson administration, that they were trying to put your, your people in cushy spots or making sure that they're taken care of before you leave. And uh, so it's not that surprising, but, but yeah, the, the, to, to what extent he's going to consult with Ronane about what's best for the county moving forward. Uh, it remains to be seen, but
0: but, but even if Armin burdish decided to nominate somebody, the county council could do the classy thing and not act on that for a while, right? There's some number of days if it's submitted that they have to act on it, and we might be within the window. You just like to see somebody do the right thing here, yeah? Right? <laughs> we we have a new administration coming in. The voters have spoken. Well, do the right thing and and let the new administration have. And maybe
1: they would have if they if this if this nomination would have come before them, because, you know, council seemed to have grown a little bit of a spine around the jail issue. And they batted that one back until there was a new executive. So maybe maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe they would have said, let's pump the brakes on this nomination.
0: Maybe so. Let's let's be optimistic as we close out this discussion. It's today in Ohio. After a staggering level of success in Tuesday's elections, the head of Ohio's Republican Party says he will step down. Lisa, does he just want to go out on top? I mean, you can't do much better than he did. This is
2: a real head-scratcher. I mean, in a Wednesday letter to the state uh, Republican Party, Chairman Bob Paduchik said he's stepping down. He has served since uh, February 2021. He was elected to replace Jane Timken, who stepped down to run for, for Senate. And he was also the former Ohio campaign director for Donald Trump in 2016. In his letter, he said it's, quote, time for a new leader to take Take leadership of the party. He also praised the outcome of the Ohio Supreme Court and the U.S. Senate races here in Ohio, and he uh, praised how the party weathered the redistricting debacle, a hostile press, and out-of-state Democratic funding for this year's elections. Um, But we have to forget that they tried to run Paduchik off in September, um, and there was a vote to, you know, get rid of him in September, but they Ended up keeping him. Uh, This is all kind of goes back to the party's decision to endorse Governor Mike DeWine back in May. And, you know, they were unhappy with his COVID protocols and, and common sense gun laws that he tried to pass. So I wonder if this is possibly a signal of maybe the party getting even more right here in Ohio? I don't know. I mean, maybe he saw the writing on the wall and says, well, I'm out of here before the nuts take over. And, And, you know, even Ohio Democratic Chair Liz Walter, she says she was surprised at this news. She says it's a real tough job. She's a person who would know that. And she said she enjoyed sparring with Paduchik and she wishes him well down the line.
0: You know, the idea that the party wants to go away from Mike DeWine should get reviewed based on his performance, even in Cayuga County. I don't know if we published it yet, but we've got a map about how Cayuga County voted in the governor's election, and half of it is is red. I mean, it's Mike DeWine won huge all over the state. So maybe the Republican Party should kind of look at that and say, what is it about Mike DeWine that resonates so firmly with people? I do want to push back on his claim that it was a hostile press. And we we did endorsements this year, and in the statewide races, it was pretty much down the middle. I mean, it, we endorsed Republicans for governor and auditor and and uh, treasurer. I mean, it was the idea that we that, that 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 we've been hostile to the Republican Party is silly. What we're hostile to is incompetence. We're hostile to people who don't do their job, and many of the Republicans didn't do their job on redistricting. So we were very critical of that, but you know, look at what we've said about the Cuyahoga County Council and Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish. It's not like we're not hostile to the Democratic <laughs> Party when they do dumb stuff.
2: Well, it'll be interesting to see because they will elect a new uh, party chairman in January, I believe. And and Paducic says, I'm looking forward to that, but it'll be interesting to see who they who they, you know, nominate and who they they consider for this.
0: They might also want to, we're not talking about this today, but they might want to look at what happened with the state school board races because the more moderate part of, of the nominees won there, too. We'll have to see who replaces them. He certainly does have a record to celebrate. It's today in Ohio. Cleveland City Council rejected a contract requested by the clerk of the municipal court, Earl Turner, because they felt he did not justify it under questioning. Now they've turned around and approved it, Layla. Why?
1: <laughs> so this is the one-year contract with Nash West LLC for up to two hundred thirty-four thousand dollars to give Turner this one, this part-time Nash West employee to oversee the clerk's offices portion of the implementation of the court's new case management software, Odyssey. And a couple weeks back, counsel voted this down on the floor because they were dissatisfied with how Turner explained why he needed this contract. Nine members voted no, and that is so rare for the for a piece of legislation to make it to the floor and then get shot down like that. Uh, then, council lawyers explained that because the expense was within the parameters of Turner's earlier approved budget, and because Ohio law limits a legislature's ability to deny expenses that are considered necessary for court operations, Turner could take legal action against counsel for denying his request. So this boomeranged back... Council's agenda this week. Council President Blaine Griffin had asked council to vote for it. He even brought in a legal expert from Case Western to persuade members. And Turner himself reappeared before the committee. This time he was more prepared to answer their questions. For example, he could provide a breakdown of how exactly that $234,000 would be spent, which satisfied a lot of questions. And and this time it passed with a 13 to 3 vote. Brian Casey, Rebecca Moore, and Charles Slife still voted against it. Slife seemed really skeptical throughout the hearing. He doubted that Nash West was the only firm that could have provided this service. And he really felt that the contract should have been competitively bid. And he felt like, you know, acquiescing to this demand kind of limits counsel's oversight of the courts. So he, he stood firm, but the thing passed.
0: Well, tell me this: uh, I mean, Did the right thing happen in that Turner provided more information to justify it, or was it just the simple threat of a lawsuit that scared them into action? I think it
1: was both. Don't you? I mean, the threat I mean, was was real, and uh, I mean, Turner hasn't said that he would have done that. Uh, he didn't. He didn't threaten. I don't think. But but I think you know. Blaine Griffin saw the writing on the wall and didn't want council to be mired in that for no reason. So, and he probably urged Turner like, "Hey, come come next time ready to answer some questions. Don't just assume that this council is going to let you squeak by." I think right. I think members of this council are not like councils of years past where they just had that r- rubber stamp, you know, hot and ready. So, this is uh, this is a council that wants questions answered.
0: Right. I would argue the right thing happened here. He came in unprepared to answer their questions that riled them up as watchdogs and and accountability people. And so they said no. So then Blaine gets involved and says to his former councilman, Earl Turner, hey, you know, you know the way this works. Come on back. Provide the information. We don't want to get into a hostile situation. You're another arm of the government. So Turner does. He had never made the threat. He had never done anything to really inflame it. And the right thing happens. They got the information. They approved it. I I think you're exactly right. This council is not like councils we've had in the past, and it's doing a good job. I mean, I I think Blaine Griffin, as council president, has really set a new standard for the city council, and it's working really well. I
1: agree. I agree.
0: Okay. It's Today in Ohio. Despite announcing that it would remain open into next week, St. Vincent Charity Hospital is closing tomorrow, Friday. Lisa, why the abrupt change?
2: They simply don't have enough staff left. Too many caregivers have already left, and and now it becomes a patient safety issue. So they said, you know, patient safety is their number one priority, so they're closing on Friday instead of next Tuesday, the 15th. There will be some employees in acute care and surgery and some caregivers remaining until the 15th to wind down services, but they won't be treating anybody. Outpatient services will continue and the, it will now be renamed the St. Vincent Charity Community Health Center. They'll have a psychiatric ER. Um, this is only one of two in the state of Ohio. They'll be offering primary care, behavioral health, occupational health, outpatient outpatient addiction treatment and specialty pharmacy services. They say that the closure won't affect the surrounding neighborhood. They haven't had a trauma center for years. They point out that there are four emergency rooms within five miles of their location. And so some of their sur- some of their uh, services are being moved to other areas. Their bariatric surgery service is moving to Middleburg Heights and being taken over by another group. And they have five locations for their orthopedic and spine services. They will remain open, but under the the operation of another hospital.
0: And look, we know how much the, the job market is searching for medical professionals. And so when you hear, if you're a St. Vincent employee, we're closing down, you're immediately in the job market. You're getting snatched up. I'm not surprised that they more quickly than they thought would run out of people to deliver their services. It's only a few days. It just was a bit of a surprise that they had to make that decision. Right. It, it's today.
2: No, oh, go no, ahead. go ahead.
0: It's today in Ohio. This next story is probably the most interesting we'll talk about. It's very cool. What was the astute police work by a Pennsylvania trooper that resulted in the discovery of a murder in Euclid and the arrest of a teenager in the case? It's a very tragic story, Layla, because it's a capper to a year where we have seen 36 people under 18 mm. charged with homicides in Ugh. Northeast Ohio in Cuyahoga County. And I think the previous record might be 20.
1: That's an awful statistic. But but you're right that this is a really fascinating story of how a law enforcement officer trusting his instincts ended up solving a crime. And so so this trooper was entering I-80 eastbound in Mercer County, which is near Youngstown, when he saw this. Honda minivan hit the brakes to let the trooper pass. And it seemed the minivan was driving really slowly but erratically, and in the driver couldn't stay in his lane. so the the trooper took note that the license plate was covered with a lens, and he got the sense that the driver probably didn't know how to drive and might not even have a license. So he pulled up alongside the minivan and noticed how young this driver was. He was wearing a hoodie cinched down around his face and was trying to avoid letting the trooper see see his face. So he pulled over the van, and that's when the trooper saw a handgun and a clip on the floor in front of the passenger seat. And turned out the driver didn't have a license. Later, we learn he's 14 years old and he wouldn't answer some questions. And running the plates showed that the vehicle was owned by 71 year old Larry Lee Anderson of Euclid. So this trooper contacted Euclid police and requested that officers go to Anderson's home. And when they did that, they found Anderson in bed, dead of a single gunshot wound to the face. So this 14-year-old has been arrested. He's charged with murder in juvenile court, and he's being held in Pennsylvania. It's unclear what the motive was for this killing. I mean, his neighbors, uh, Anderson's neighbors, were stunned to learn of it. But for this, you know, but for this trooper's instincts, who knows how long it might have taken to find this killer.
0: Yeah, it's very impressive. The trooper in questioning him just became so suspicious of his answers. He wondered if the owner of the car had been harmed, and that's why he made the call. That's how they discovered the homicide. You really have to salute that kind of an Mm -hmm. instinct. The idea, though, of a 14-year-old committing homicide, it's just, we're we're seeing so much of that. So many what appear to be just cold-blooded killings, and I think it gets back to that Prevalence of guns. I mean, these are people that are in puberty. Their hormones are raging. And if they have a gun in their hand, when the hormones are raging, tragedy results.
1: Yeah. I mean, but also there are system failures that, you know, I think we've talked about this many times. You know, for a lot of these young people, at what point might their lives have turned out differently had the system not let them down? Um, So I don't know. I mean, that's certainly not a justification for any of this violence, but. I feel like society needs to look at that closely.
0: We are doing a project Mm -hmm. specifically on that, and it's moving along, so we will be analyzing it. It's Today in Ohio. It's too bad is not here because she loves these stories. Lisa, you're going to have to answer this one. Do we have a new record for the size of a smallmouth bass in Lake Erie? And how do we know there was no cheating? <laughs> because these were
2: honest fishermen that, that caught this fish. Um, it, it, it happened actually uh, on Sunday. They were fishing on Sunday off of Ontario on Lake Erie. 54-year-old Greg Gallagher and his 24-year-old son Grant were you know, fishing. And uh, Greg was the one who actually caught the fish. So dad caught the fish. It was 10 pounds, 15 ounce, smallmouth bass, the largest ever recorded in the Lake Erie Great Lakes area by a sport fisherman. But what they did, they did the right thing. They, they knew Travis Hartman, who's with the Ohio Division of Wildlife Fisheries Research in Sandusky. So Hartman said, let's take that fish to Port Clinton Fisheries to weigh it on a certified scale. So we know there were no lead weights or no, you know, ice stuck into the fish or anything. Greg is a high school teacher in Fremont. Ohio. His son, Grant, is an elementary school teacher in Hudson, Michigan. And uh, they said that when they pulled that fish up, they said the bait didn't even hit the bottom of the lake. I mean, this fish struck right as the bait, you know, sunk into the water. When they pulled that fish out, they said there were lots of yelling and screaming. They knew they had a big one. The previous Lake Erie record for the state side, for the United States side, is nine and a half pounds. It was caught west of the Bass Islands back in 1993 by Randy Van Dam of Kalamazoo, Michigan. The all-time record for a smallmouth bass is 11 pounds, 15 ounces. It was caught in 1955 on the Kentucky-Tennessee border.
0: Fascinating. It's just a fascinating story. And it's nice that this one is honest because we talked a lot about a previous set of fish where they were cheating to win money. It's today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County has been criticized over the years for how it takes property and puts it into the land bank. One of the people who lost a property this week finally won a battle to be compensated. How much did the property owner get, and what is this case really about?
1: The county has agreed to pay $97,500 to settle a lawsuit with Terrify Properties, which owned a parcel of land on Miles Avenue in Cleveland. Terrify had sued over the county's foreclosure process, and this is what happened. Terrify owed $35,000 in back taxes and penalties in 2018 when the county valued the property at $164,700. The county's Board of Revision transferred the property to the Cuyahoga County Land Bank, which later resold it, and that left Terrify without any compensation at all. And had the county gone through a sheriff sale, Terrify would have received at least some money from the property. So the county was allowed to do what it did because of a 2006 Ohio law that created a way for county boards of revision to foreclose with tax liens if the properties were considered abandoned, the law was this attempt to speed the foreclosure process, but you know, as we see, it has this negative uh, effect on property owners. And in 2020, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled in a different case that the process is legal, but there were other rulings in circuit courts that conflict with one another, and, and that could mean that this ends up being a question that's ripe for the U.S. Supreme Court to take up.
0: Yeah, I it it when you're taking property you really do have to dot the i's and cross the t's. People do need to have the due process and there are elements of this that I think concern anybody that worries about due process.
1: Yeah, and this um, you know, this had the an opportunity to become a class action case, but the judge denied that request. So, I think uh, you know, the lawyers involved were hoping that this would be a bigger payday for themselves and and maybe all, you know, the other property owners who have fallen into this, this gap. But uh, nope, just uh, it's going to be, it's going to have to stay as a settlement with this one party.
0: No, we have a new county executive coming in in January. Maybe he'll get involved and come up with something that is agreeable to all. It's today in Ohio. You know, I've had multiple people in the past 24 hours suggest that we resurrect our our project from some years back examining what it would take to create the Western reserve of Northeast Ohio to secede from the state of Ohio so that people in Northeast Ohio have representation that is agreeable to them. We did it as a Lark. We even created a, uh, a a constitutional kind of document that we posted online. And it's funny that it's come back, and people are saying, let's bring it back. Let's talk about that. What would it take? Maybe we will. We did all the work back then. It was a hoot. Do you remember that, Yeah, of course
1: I remember that. (laughs) But, you know, the state would be so... Cleveland and and the the big metropolis, you know, the big cities in Ohio are what fund this state, so they would never let us go, never.
0: I don't know. I don't know. It would be interesting. As I recall, a lot of it didn't run in the plain dealer because we weren't making the decisions about was in the plain dealer back then. So I don't know that plain dealer readers ever saw it. So we we I, I, look if people are asking for it, we probably should do it. It's you know, when people are asking for specific kinds of content, I'll have to see if we can find it. You know, anything that's more than a few years old on our website, not the easiest to track down, as you know from your work on a greater clue. <laughs> that's hunter. right. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. That does it for this episode. Like I said, there will be no episode on Friday. Please come back on Monday and we'll be talking about three days of news.